So this morning, I'm going to be giving a sermon about a sermon. We'll be reading through Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And last week, Jay started the chapter uh, and, uh, and, and walked through the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is a pretty significant event in the life of the church. Okay, and so it happens uh, during a feast, a Jewish feast, that in Greek is called Pentecost. Uh, in Hebrew, it is called Shavuot, just in case anybody ever asks you, hey, what's that in Hebrew? You can go, actually, I know that now, um, though the chances of that happening is pretty unlikely. Um, Pentecost, it's because of all the things that have happened in there uh, since then, that word has become a little mystical to us, but really uh, all it means is 50th. It's the Greek word for 50th. And the reason that that is significant is because this Jewish feast that they are celebrating takes place 50 days, exactly if you count 49 days, and on the 50th day after the first day of Passover, you celebrate this feast. And it's an extremely significant feast in, uh, uh, I mean, to this day, to to, uh, devout Jews, it is a very significant feast. Because uh, if you can kind of picture the Exodus, what can you imagine possibly happening roughly 50 days after the first Passover? It is when Moses is given the law by God. And so this feast is celebrating the giving of the law, like God speaking to and through a man and giving his people the Torah and all the law that it contains. So it's a significant feast. And so what we talked about last week is during this feast, as people are gathered from all over the Roman Empire, devout Jews come travel from all over the Roman Empire to celebrate this feast in Jerusalem together. And as they're there, the Holy Spirit descends on the the first members of the church, and they go out and they start proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and everyone is hearing them in their own language and kind of freaking out, understandably. So what happens, Jesus then responds, where we ended in in, in, uh, verse 12 and 13, says, And all the people were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. This morning we're going to talk about Peter's response to this. But Before we do, let's pray. Spirit, we know that you are the author and translator of this word that we hold in our hands. And so we pray, please, help us to understand what we cannot apart from you. Help us to trust what is difficult in our flesh to trust, to depend on you in ways that our own hearts rebel against. And help us to receive your gentle correction and your extravagant encouragement and pray that you would clear our heads and our hearts from things that we brought in here, from any distractions, from, from circumstances in our lives that are overwhelming, from fears that are besetting, from discouragement that seems unrelenting, from, from blessings that are distracting. And God, pray that you would remind us that you are at work in all those things. You are with us and you are for us in all of those things. 
And we thank you that you are with us and for us now as we read your word. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray and for the sake of your name that we gather. Amen. So starting in verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. In other words, listen up. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's like it's 9 a.m. We haven't even had time to start drinking. That can't be what's going on right now. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a very different Peter than we saw barely a month ago, right? That Peter was quick to believe, but also just as quick to doubt. He acted impulsively, sometimes even violently, and spent a fair amount of time arguing with Jesus about whether or not Jesus understood the best way to do things. This Peter has experienced something, something that has radically changed him. And what strikes me is is it seems like not even having breakfast with the resurrected Jesus had quite the significant effect on him that this has. So what has changed? What is so different? Peter just explained it. What's different is that Peter is now the recipient of Joel's prophecy and that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into him. I love how both the Old and the New Testament uses the term poured out or poured into when talking about giving of the Holy Spirit. And I love that because A, this is no carefully measured miserly dash of spirit. This is a generous application. It is poured out. Paul says lavishly generously on his people. And B, the other thing I like about that is when you pour a liquid into something, what happens? It fills the whole thing, right? Regardless of the shape, the crevices, the obstacles, it doesn't matter. It completely fills whatever unique shape that is. And so the Spirit when poured out uniquely fills every individual precisely as he is intended to. So filled with the living spirit of God, Peter tells the crowd who are trying to make sense of what they just experienced that what they are experiencing is the active work of the living Holy Spirit of God. 
And as Jay reminded us last week, that's not a, a power to be accessed like the force. He is a he, a personality that is guiding and correcting and encouraging and empowering and he loves and he directs. And after the Holy Spirit indwells him, Peter seemingly instantly gains this ability to view the Old Testament now in a completely different way and sees the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Seeing Israel's history as culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so to this group of very devout religious Jews, he points to this familiar prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and basically the coming of the final age of humanity. And he tells them that what they are witnessing is exactly what Joel promised, the extravagant pouring out of the Spirit of God on ordinary people, on anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So he goes on. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you catch what happened in those two verses there? Because it was a lot. Peter just said a lot of things in a few words. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know who Jesus is, he says. You saw what he did, and you killed him. You did. Now, remember, this is a crowd of people, many of whom just arrived into town in order to celebrate this feast. They just showed up, and what Peter just told them is, you might as well have swung the hammer yourself. You killed him. Now, he doesn't want them to misunderstand, so he also clarifies everything happened exactly according to plan. The exact predetermined plan of God. It was no accident. It was no unfortunate series of unforeseen events. And yet, Jesus was innocent and the judge Jury, executioners, and all of you are the murderers. Now, that tension is difficult for us to live with. We don't like that tension. We want really bad to make it either one or the other. Either God is entirely sovereign and in control of all things, or man is entirely sovereign and responsible for his own destiny. Right? It has to be one or the other, right? doesn't make sense for us or to us that it would be both of those things. And yet, 
It is. We see throughout the whole of Scripture, Peter is just pointing out what the rest of Scripture regularly declares, that God is completely sovereign, that nothing happens outside of His desire and His plan. And people are completely responsible for our choices that we make without being in any way coerced. So his point is not a single person in Jesus' execution was forced to do anything that they did not want to do or choose to do. No one in that acted against their own will. And yet, everything happened exactly according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's the part that we can't fully understand, but we really want to. The other part of what Peter said, we can understand, but we really don't want to. Because the other aspect of what Peter is addressing is that Jesus' death was my fault, your fault. You and I murdered Jesus. Because we have to see ourselves within this crowd. That's the appropriate place to place ourselves in this narrative. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. My sin. Your sins. In nearly 20 years of ministry, I have heard dozens of people over the years express concerns that we don't talk enough about sin in the church. That people need to know how serious it is, and so we need to talk about it more. And in all those years, as I can recall, not one of them ever meant their sins. I, I can't ever remember anyone coming to me or another pastor at a church that I served in and asked, why are you not talking more about my sin from the pulpit? You, you need to remind me of how serious it is and how desperate I need to repent day in and day out and cling to Jesus. Stop letting me think that my compromise and my self-righteousness and my pride and my greed and my judgment toward others and my self-glorification are okay. It's just not right. We need to hear more of that from the pulpit. But the reality is, church, that that should be how we feel. However, in truth, our, we are far more concerned about and afraid of and offended by the sin out there than we are the sin in here. Church, we need to repent of our lack of repentance. We need to repent of how easy it is to look at others and feel superior. How easy it is to feel like our sin 
is theoretical, but their sin is literal and practical and real. That our sin is not as acidic to our hearts and our lives and not as offensive to God as theirs, whoever they are. Peter, in this moment, no doubt with the sting of his own denial and betrayal of Jesus still aching in his bones, preaches, we did this. You all did this. I can't blame Pilate or just a high priest for rounding everybody up. We all are culpable in this. When Paul writes, no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. In Romans chapter 3, he's not writing something new. He's writing something, he's quoting scripture that in his day was already a millennia old. That wasn't new information. That is the bad news. Brothers and sisters, we are all responsible. We are in this mess together. But, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart will be glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So he says, there is very bad news. However, there is an answer to it. And here he quotes Psalm 16. And then he explains something that's very important for them to understand about this psalm. So he goes on, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Right? He says, I can say with a fair amount of confidence that David died and is still dead. However, you know who's not still dead. It says, being therefore a prophet, talking about David, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he, would not, that he was not abandoned to Hades, the abode of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That'll preach. It did. So he, he lays out for these people. Look, David wasn't talking about himself. We all thought that, but now we know better. Now we know it does, actually didn't make sense that David was talking about himself because he died, but he's talking about somebody who death can't hold on to. We now know who he's talking about, that he was pointing ahead to Jesus. Our sin killed him. God's loving power has resurrected him. And now, as Lord of all things, he wants you for himself. And the people respond to this. It says in 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. They feel conviction. It says they were cut to the heart. They hear what Peter says and it stirs godly grief in them, deep conviction. They beg Peter to help them know, help them understand how should we respond to this? What do we then do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized. So repentance is not a feeling. It's an action. It's the response. It's the response to the feeling of godly conviction and godly grief. That's why Paul talks about godly grief that produces repentance versus worldly grief or regret that leads to death. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to look that up later. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly grief leads to repentance. So the repentance is in the feeling, that's the response, the action that you take in response to it is a new way of thinking, new desires that produce different actions. Now, don't misunderstand me. Repentance is also a gift. Right? The admission of the deceptive ideas that grab hold of our heads and our hearts that we believe and as a result form the distorted desires that we then pursue can't be changed under just sheer willpower. I need the Holy Spirit to help me change those things. I can't change away from my habits 
my baked-in habits that my selfish desires have produced and just all on my own develop habits of worship and abiding and obedience and joy. It requires the Holy Spirit working in me, working in you in order to accomplish that. However, that produces the response of repentance, the changing of what you think, what you desire, and as a result, how you live. And the path to get there is fixing your eyes and your heart and your desires on Jesus. The goal, church, can never be to dwell on our sins. That will crush us. If we refuse to acknowledge our sin, we will never look to Jesus. If we only ever dwell on our sins, we will never look to Jesus. The enemy wins if we never see our sins or if we only see our sins. What Scripture calls us to is that acknowledging our sin produces a desire to run to and cling to Jesus as our only rescue from them. Day in and day out. Not being saved over and over and over again, but growing in deeper and deeper dependence and gospel gratitude each and every day. Acts 2.36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. To an essentially 100% Jewish audience that this sermon is being preached to, you notice that Peter says nothing about salvation. Does that seem peculiar? In a gospel presentation, he says nothing about salvation. And I would argue in part that that's because he didn't have to. The Jewish Messiah was someone who would save his people from everything. That was the foundational understanding of who the Messiah was. Now, that had been unfortunately diminished into a very earthly picture. Earthly circumstances and sufferings have a tendency to make things, to, to give you a very narrow focus, to give you tunnel vision. And so it had been reduced down to, well, he's going to save us from Rome because that's our biggest problem and that's what we need to be saved from. But biblically, the understanding was always, no, the Messiah saves you from everything. Everything. So Peter's gospel is Jesus. Over time, the Holy Spirit will help you understand all the other stuff. The Holy Spirit, now dwelling with you and in you, will teach you how that changes how the whole sacrificial system works, because it's a pretty big change. And, and what that means for their souls. But step one is Jesus is king. That's step one. This is echoed later by Paul 
when he writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It says the heart believes and the mouth confesses. And what is it confessing? The lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ. That comes first. We've been learning in our New Testament class on Wednesdays. One of the things that we talked about last week is that the book of Romans is written to both believing Jews and Gentiles. It's a racially mixed group. And one of the things that he's doing in that letter is settling some significant racial discrimination between the two. And he uses a phrase, I think Paul's smart enough, I think we can assume he used this phrase on purpose because it would be significantly meaningful to both the Jew and the Gentile. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. To the Gentile hearing that, they're going, well, wait a minute, but every coin in my pocket says Caesar is Lord. You're telling me Jesus is over Caesar? He's over the emperor of the world? Yes. Jesus is the emperor of the world, the universe. And to the Jew, they hear Jesus is Lord, and what they hear is Jesus is Yahweh. Paul's not messing around. He's communicating to both of them, Jesus supersedes any king, any emperor, any idea that you have of anything. He is Lord of all. And then Peter himself repeats this in Acts, we'll get there in Acts 10, many months from now, when he describes Jesus as the Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of all. He is the king of all things, the king of everything. This understanding of the lordship of Jesus is so important that Peter doesn't even explicitly mention salvation in his gospel sermon that results in the salvation of over 3,000 people. That's significant, I think. The implication in what he communicates is stop following your lesser kings and false messiahs and worthless idols and follow the one true king of the universe, Jesus. The gospel message is not different from or less than the message of salvation. But it is infinitely, immeasurably more than just our salvation. Different sermons throughout Acts, you'll notice, emphasize different aspects of the gospel because there's different aspects of the gospel. And based on the audience that they're speaking to, Paul or Peter or Philip are going to address different aspects of it, just turning the same jewel around to reflect different facets of it. What it is, but also what it does, both to us and for us and in us, and also what it produces, both in us and through us. All those are aspects of the gospel. Peter mentions the things that Paul declares later are absolutely essential for the gospel. That Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that Jesus reigns today and forever. He doesn't skip any of the essentials. When we reduce the gospel to salvation only, that's really all it's about. There are some unintended results 
that come from that. We can end up with either reducing Jesus to being desperate or being a decal. Like desperate Jesus who's just saying, just please, just choose me. Pick me. Like he's standing outside of a shop handing out coupons for free heaven, right? Just please take one, right? You know, if you've ever been in a city and you've walked by that, it's always somebody who's offering something you weren't looking for and you weren't interested in and you aren't going to be interested in. But they really want you to take that thing. And desperate Jesus is like that person who's standing there going, look, I just, I just please take one. I already paid for it for you. It costs you nothing. Right? Take one of my coupons. I promise it's worth it. Just hoping we'll take the free heaven coupon or Jesus becomes like a decal, a sticker that we just put on things to make it Christian-y. Something we can slap on our car or our life, our preferences, our politics, our plans, our dreams, our excuses, our YouTube channel, whatever it is. And we just put that little Jesus decal on it and feel like that makes it significant. Meanwhile, the incomprehensibly all-powerful king of the universe is neither fueled, fooled nor amused. Desperate Jesus and decal Jesus are not compelling. Right? They require nothing of me. They cost me nothing. They are not worthy of my worship. They aren't worth me following, and so they don't change anything at all about my life. King of the universe, Jesus, asks something of me, expects something of me, justly and rightly demands something of me. The king of the universe demands my submission, my repentance, or turning away from all that is not him and turning toward him, as well as my trust and my absolute obedience in all things. And yet, this king of the universe doesn't demand it from you or me. His power does. His position does. The ontological reality of who he is as the all-powerful being, creator God of the universe, absolutely he has the right to. But he doesn't. He invites that Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, all of you who are exhausted from trying and feel crushed under the burden Whatever burden you are carrying, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, take my teaching, my life, my way of life upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come to me that you may have life to the fullest. This conquering cosmic king weeps for you and with you in your grief, in your suffering, in your shame. He bleeds for you and dies the death that you and I earned with our treason. He says to his enemies, who are you and me, by the way, I love you too much, far too much to not condescend into my own creation coming as a homeless member of a persecuted ethnic minority so that the very people that I came to save would misunderstand and murder me. Because that's what I need to do to save you. And I will do what it takes to ransom my daughters and my sons and fulfill all of my promises. That is the Jesus that these people were presented that Jesus causes 3,000 of them to fall on their knees in repentance and are adopted into his eternal family and kingdom forever. And that same Jesus is the same Jesus that is calling you this morning. And the offer is exactly the same. Repent and be baptized and you will know your sins are forgiven. And the Holy Spirit will be given you all because of our Jesus who lived in the manner that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die in order to forgive us, redeem us, and adopt us, giving us an identity, a kingdom, and a family forever in him. That's why we gather every Sunday and that's why we remember his life and his death together. A little over a month before this sermon is preached, Roughly 50 days to be exact. Jesus is enjoying the Passover dinner with his beloved disciples. And as he takes the very mundane elements that they pass around every single Passover meal, he infuses them with a significance they never realized it always had. He says, This bread as he breaks it. So this is my body offered to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup said this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. And whenever you take this bread and drink this cup, he tells them, and Paul reminds us, we proclaim the Lord's death until his return. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you. We love you only because you loved us first, because you love us most. You demonstrated this extraordinary love to us on the cross. But you also established yourself as the true one and only king of the universe. Father, don't allow us to forget that or trivialize what you have done in and through Jesus. We would see this gospel as this incredible thing that allows us to not only have this new identity in you, to be allowed to participate in the kingdom of heaven as the faithful servants of our servant king. Spirit, move in this place in the way that you did at that feast through that sermon and draw people to yourself. Spirit, we know only you can do that. My words are powerless unless empowered by you. So Spirit, cut to the heart those that are yours but don't yet know it. Draw them to you as their Savior King and bring both encouragement and conviction to those of us who so quickly forget who you are. Remind us of your grace, your goodness, but also your power and your lordship over all things. It is in your name, Jesus, that we and all things live and move and have our being. Amen.